Good morning, church. My name is Baby. I'm going to read for us from Exodus 1, 3, 1 to 15. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned, that, that he turned aside to see, to see, God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is, uh, is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of uh, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard have had their cry because they are, because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the Lord of Israel come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I'll send you Pharaoh, I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am, I am to be remembered throughout all generation. This is the word of God. Thank you, baby. It's going to be a great help to me if you can keep your Bibles open in front of you. We're going to spend some time in Exodus 3 and 4, and you would want to follow uh, the verses as we look at them this morning. So do keep your Bible open at that passage. Let me pray as we come to God's word. Father, we've all had a busy week and a busy year, 
And, uh, Father, so many things have consumed our attention, our mind, our thinking. Even now there are thoughts rushing through our mind. We do pray that you may quieten our hearts. We pray that we may focus on your word and that your spirit may take away any blindness or hardness in our hearts. We do pray that we may hear the voice of God as we read the word of God by the help of the Spirit of God. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Today we come to the end of a four-week series uh, looking at ancient promises as they are fulfilled in Jesus in the New Testament, ancient promises in the Old Testament. So four weeks ago, Royden looked at Isaiah chapter 9, for unto us a child is born. Uh, Then Black had a look at Genesis 3, verse 15, that the offspring of Eve will bruise Satan's head, which is precisely what happened on the cross. Last week, we looked at uh, Genesis 28, how Jacob's ladder was actually a picture, a symbol of Christ and, and the cross of Christ. And of course, this week, we're having a look at Exodus 3, where we see God's name, Uh, And we'll see how that's fulfilled in Christ. Remember, the Bible is one story. And so we would expect to see the themes and the promises of the Old Testament fulfilled in the New Testament. Well, the passage we have here in front of us that baby read to us, chapter 3, verse 1 to 15, two main points, Moses and his doubt, and then secondly, God and his name. Let me just go down one side road, which has to do with revelation. How does God speak to us? How should we expect God to speak to us? Remember last week when we looked at Genesis 28, God spoke to Jacob in a dream. It was a dream that God spoke to Jacob, that ladder between heaven and earth. This week, God speaks to Moses in a burning bush, which which doesn't burn up. So... Does that mean that every morning when we wake up, we should analyze our dreams to look for the revelation of God, the word of God? Should we, in winter, when there's a Houting felt fire, stop the car, take off our shoes, and listen for God's voice? I mean, we do need to ask those questions. Does God still reveal himself to us, speak to us, through burning bushes and through dreams? The... The clearest passage, which I think helps us, is Hebrews chapter 1. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, where the author of Hebrews makes it quite clear how God spoke in the Old Testament and how God speaks now for us as New Testament Christians. Hebrews chapter 1, and let me read from verse 1. Have you got it there? Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways. So that's a key phrase. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Just by the way, we've been living in the last days since the time of Christ. That's what he's saying. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that is the son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
So what is the author telling us there? He's telling us that in the Old Testament, God spoke, notice verse 1, at many times and in many ways. Now we see that in the Old Testament. God speaks to Jacob through a dream. He speaks to Moses through a burning bush. He spoke through a snake. He spoke through a donkey. He spoke through a writing on the wall. He spoke through two tablets of stone. He spoke uh, when he led the nation of Israel through a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He spoke through dreams and visions. He spoke at many times and in many ways. But now he says... In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. His son is the radiance of God's glory. He's, he's the exact imprint. So if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. So he's saying that's how God spoke in the Old Testament. This is now how God speaks to us today as New Testament Christians. He speaks to us primarily through his son and his word. We no longer need to go back to those things. You don't need to analyze your dreams every morning. Most of them are rubbish, aren't they? Um, certainly mine are. You don't have to stop at burning bushes. When you see a burning bush, don't take off your shoes, call a fire brigade, all right? God has now spoken to us through his son and through his word. So it's a little bit like a two-year-old boy. He's, uh, he's, his mother, his father, his grandmother gives him a Christmas present. He, uh, the parents want him to play soccer. He wants to play soccer. They give him a tennis ball. Then when he's, uh, when he's six years old, they go to spa and they buy a lovely little plastic ball to play soccer. And then when he turns 16, they give him a FIFA leather-endorsed soccer ball. Do you think he's going to go back to the tennis ball? No, of course not. He's now got the FIFA-endorsed leather soccer ball. That's what he's saying here. You don't need to go back to those old ways in which God spoke to his people. He did speak to them in those ways. But now he has given us his son, and his son has given us his word. And we can be absolutely sure and certain this is the word of God that speaks to us. All right, let's have a look. Principle number one, Moses and his doubt. Let's get a bit of context here so we understand what's happening uh, in this passage. The context is that the nation of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. So you remember there was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We looked at Jacob last week. Jacob had 12 sons who formed the 12 tribes of Israel. And there was famine in Israel, so they came to Egypt And now, 400 years later, they've been enslaved by the Egyptian leaders. Let's pick up the story back to, back to Exodus 2. Let's pick it up in Exodus 2 verse 23. Let's pick up the story here. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Chapter 3, verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, 
And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, the first thing, just to quickly to notice here, is something of the nature of God, the character of God, the heart of God. So notice chapter 2, verse 24, God heard their groaning. Chapter 2, verse 25, God saw, God knew. Chapter 3, verse 7, notice there, I have seen the affliction, I have heard the cry, I know their sufferings. Chapter 3, verse 9, their cry has come to me, I have seen the oppression. Now, I wonder if in 1400 BC, if a CNN journalist went to Egypt, what they would report about Egypt. I think the kind of thing they would report, no doubt, is the positive GDP, the growth rate of the the Egyptian economy. Perhaps they would talk about the spectacular increase in the Cairo uh, stock exchange. Perhaps they will say Al Ali is still the best team in Egypt and in Africa. Perhaps they would say that the building of the pyramids was well ahead of schedule. But God has a different perspective, doesn't he? God looks at Egypt. He doesn't see the stock exchange. No, he sees the slavery. He sees the oppression. He sees the suffering. He sees the pain. Notice verse 7, the verbs which are used here. I have seen. I have heard. I know. They not only indicate the knowledge of God. Of course, God knows all things. No, there's a sense here of God entering into their pain entering into their suffering. When God sees, when God hears, when God knows, there's a deep empathy. There's an experiential element. Chapter 2, verse 25, and God knew. That's a very intimate word. Isaiah tells us, looking back at the affliction of the Israelites in Egypt, Isaiah 63, verse 9, he says, in all their affliction, God too was afflicted. Now, the, what, that, what that tells us is that when God's people are suffering, when they are struggling, when they are in pain, God is not detached. He's not distant. He's not cool and cold and calculating. No, he suffers with us. He knows our every thought. He knows our every struggle. He knows our every tear. And in some way, he enters into our pain. You are not alone. That's what it tells us. It's important for us to understand that the God of the Old Testament, as seen here in Exodus chapter 3, is no different from the God of the New Testament. He's no different at all. But our revelation of him is much clearer in the New Testament than the Old Testament. It's a little bit like a black and white picture in the Old Testament and a 3D technicolor in the New Testament. Which is why, if we understand Exodus 3 and what we've just read there, we are not surprised when in John chapter 1 verse 14, we read that the word became flesh and made his dwelling with us. He came to live with us. We're not surprised in John chapter 11 that Jesus is, Jesus is weeping at the graveside of Lazarus with Mary and Martha. We're not surprised, Hebrews 4 verse 15, that we are told that we have a high priest who is Jesus who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and tempted in every way as we are. So we're not surprised when we read that in the New Testament if we read Exodus 3. It's the same God, father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
the God who saw their suffering, their pain. Perhaps, perhaps this year you're so thankful it's over because it's been a terrible year. Perhaps it's been a dreadful, dreadful year. Perhaps you've lost a child, you've lost a sibling, you've lost a parent. Perhaps you've been through a very painful separation, maybe marriage, a friendship, perhaps a divorce. Perhaps you've had a miscarriage, perhaps you've had an abortion, perhaps you caused an abortion. Perhaps you lost your home or your job, perhaps you lost your dreams. Perhaps you're struggling because you've never been married. Perhaps you're struggling, battling because you're not able to have children, you've had miscarriages. Perhaps you are married, but your marriage has been a massive problem and a massive disappointment. You know what we sometimes do as Christians, all of us, we despair. Let's be honest, sometimes we despair. Sometimes you despair, I despair. Remember, despair is a sin. So when we, when we despair, we need to repent of our sin. And we need to remember who God is. He is the God who sees. He is the God who understands. God knows. God has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Never. Even when the trouble or problems are caused by ourselves, how often they are. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm with you. Now let's get to Moses, chapter 3, verse 1 to 4. Let me read there. Chapter 3, verse 1 to 4. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. So he's living amongst a godless people. Um, He's been there for 40 years. He led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses says, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. So the day began, the day began for Moses like every Tuesday. Moses going about his normal business, looking after his father-in-law, his family, his sheep. He's a farmer. That means the biggest problem is fences and gates. Forty years ago, he'd left his past. Forty years, he'd left his past in Egypt, started a new life, married a wife, fathered a son, living amongst a godless people, a pagan people. Remember the debacle of Moses in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 11. Turn back a page. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, of course, Moses is on the most wanted list of Pharaoh. Verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. Chapter 3, verse 1, which we've just read, sounds a bit like a witness protection program, doesn't it? And Moses had become quite comfortable in this program. He, life has become comfortable, safe, predictable. Seems that Moses has completely forgotten the people of God in Egypt. In fact, he'd completely forgotten God. No mention of God. 
But God hadn't forgotten him. Notice chapter 3, verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Chapter 3, verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside, you see, God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. Now, I think in many ways what we have here is the conversion of Moses, just like we saw the conversion of Jacob in Genesis 28 last week. I think here in chapter 3 and 4 we have the conversion of Moses, where Moses actually comes to know God, actually comes to faith in God. And what is so striking is that what happened to Moses is what so many of us have experienced, excluding the burning bush. Moses wasn't thinking about God. It seems like for 40 years... He, was, he wasn't thinking about God. He hadn't gone to Mount Horeb, verse 1, to find God at all. He probably lost a sheep. No, it was God who found him. It was God who spoke to him. It was God who acted. It's God who took the initiative. Many of you will know the author C.S. Lewis. He was a brilliant professor at Oxford. Died in 1963. And for many years he was an atheist a proper secular atheist from Oxford, until God relentlessly pursued him. Through his reading, through some Christian colleagues, through his thinking. When you read his biography, Surprised by Joy, which is a very good read, um, there's no sense, absolutely no sense, of Lewis seeking after God. No, it was God seeking after Lewis. Until in 1929, he became a Christian. Let me quote from his book. He says, You must picture me alone in that room at Oxford, night after night, feeling the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the third term of 1929, I gave in, admitted that God was God, and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England, end of quote. Perhaps Moses was the most reluctant convert in Egypt. But in a sense, that's how all of us were converted. If you're a Christian, think back to when you were converted. Perhaps a few months ago, perhaps some years ago, uh, there was a time you had no interest in God. Perhaps you went to church, but you actually weren't interested in God. You weren't interested in the Bible. You weren't interested in spiritual things. In fact, you didn't want God in your life because you were God. You didn't want God to interfere in your hopes, your dreams, your plans. I'm the master of my own destiny. And then suddenly something happened. Perhaps it was a book. Perhaps it was a friend. Perhaps it was a sermon. Perhaps it was a crisis in your life. And suddenly you became interested in spiritual things out of the blue, inexplicably. Well, what was that? Well, it was God working. God working behind the scenes, just like with Moses. God acting, God speaking, God moving, God taking the initiative. And of course, that's the story of the whole Bible. Think of Adam and Eve, our four parents. They turned against God. They sinned against God. They rejected God. They ran away from God. They hid from God. And then we read in Genesis 3, God said, where are you? It wasn't Adam and Eve looking for God for forgiveness. No, they didn't want God in their lives. 
It was God seeking after them. Where are you? Well, that's the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. We don't naturally seek after God in and of ourselves. We are enslaved. We are entrapped, entrapped by our own sin. Basically, our own pride, our own arrogance, our independence. I don't need God. I don't want God. I am my own God. That's what sin is. And then God takes the initiative. God gate crashes your life in one way or the other. And suddenly you think to yourself, my goodness me, I need to get right with God. You think you were the one who was seeking after God. That is certainly our experience. We think we were seeking after God. If you look back over those weeks or months that I started going to church, I started reading the Bible, I started meeting with Christian people. Actually, it was God working behind the scenes, taking the initiative, drawing us to himself, taking away the blindness from our eyes so that we may seek him. I think that's Moses here in chapter 3 and 4. He's conversion. When you read chapter 3 and 4, what, one of the things that really does strike you is Moses' doubts. Um, so, so the scriptures and Christian tradition hold Moses, and quite rightly, in high regard as one of the leaders of our faith. And yet, when you look at the person of Moses, he was an ordinary believer like you and me, struggling with all kinds of emotions and doubts. Notice his doubts, chapter 3, verse 10. God says to Moses, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But verse 11, Moses says to God, Who am I? Chapter 3, verse 13. Moses says, But what shall I say to them? Chapter 4, verse 1. Have a look there. Chapter 4, verse 1. They will not believe me. Chapter 4, verse 10. I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech. Chapter 4, verse 13. It really is a brilliant, brilliant statement. 4, verse 13. Moses says, O Lord, here I am. Send someone else. I mean, it's brilliant. Quite obviously, Moses is not the super spiritual, super holy person we think he is. No, he's just an ordinary believer like you and me. Here he is, struggling with his own emotions, his own self-doubt, struggling with the sense of his own inadequacy. He's very human like us. But it's more than that. It's not just a lack of faith in himself. It's a lack of faith in God. A lack of faith in God's word. God has made it quite clear that God was what God was going to do. Have a look, verse 7. Have a look there, chapter 3, verse 7. You're still with me. Chapter 3, verse 7. I have seen the affliction of my people, says God. Chapter 3, verse 8. I have come down to deliver them. Chapter 3, verse 10. Notice there. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people out of Egypt. And then Moses says, verse 11, but who am I? Well, in, in many ways, my dear friends, we are no different from Moses, are we? God calls us to represent him. God calls us to speak for him in the office, in the classroom, at family, perhaps even tomorrow at Christmas lunch. I mean, there are going to be some awkward people there, aren't there? I mean, your spouse's family in particular. And you may need to say something. Or God asks you and me to act for him in a 
aspect of justice or abuse or evil. And you and I say, but God, who am I? I'm one person against everyone else. Which, like Moses, is not just a lack of faith in yourself. It's a lack of faith in God. In God's word. So how does God respond when Moses says, verse 11, but who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Well, God responds in two ways. Have a look there. Verse 12. Two ways. God says, but I will be with you. So it's interesting that God doesn't patronize Moses. When Moses says, I'm not really up to it, God doesn't say, of course you are, you just need a motivational sermon. He doesn't say that. God accepts Moses' self-estimation of himself, his self-estimation of his inadequacy, but says, I'll be with you. So if we were to paraphrase verse 11 and 12, Moses says, look, I'm not up to it. You shouldn't have picked me. And the Lord says, of course you're not up to it. And I knew that when I picked you. The point isn't your ability. The point is mine. When God calls us to do something and we say, but I'm not adequate. And God says, well, that's pretty obvious. I knew that a long time ago. But I'm adequate, and I'll be with you. The second response to Moses' lack of faith when Moses says, Who am I? God answers him in verse 12, and you need to notice what God says very carefully. He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you. So God promises him a sign. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. But wait a minute, says Moses. That's not a sign. You are saying that you will be with me when it's all over. After I've confronted Pharaoh and the ten plagues, after I've called Israel to follow me, after we've gone through the Red Sea, after we've traveled in the wilderness, when we finally all arrive back at this mountain, you are saying, that's a sign that I am with you. God, that's of no help at all. And God says, well, it is a journey of faith. Even though you cannot see me and there may not be a tangible sign, you are to trust me. You are to trust my promises. You are to trust my word. Now, my dear friends, that is fundamental to the Christian faith. It is a journey of faith. It's not blind faith. It's not a step in the dark. It's a step in the light. We have a lot of reasons, a lot of evidence for believing God's word. But nonetheless, it is still a step of faith. But just by the way, if you're an atheist, you also have to take a step of faith. I think it's a step in the dark. You have to believe that there's no God. It is a life of faith, the Christian faith, as is any other life. It's no different. But it's a step in the light. God is trustworthy. And of course, it's much easier for us than for Moses. Because we can look back and say, God was true to his word. He was with Moses, the ten plagues. 
the sacrifice, the Red Sea, the wilderness. They did get back to this mountain where God gave them the Ten Commandments. God led them into the promised land in Israel. It's much easier for us because God said, I will destroy this slavery you have to sin. I will send my son. And my son said, I will die. I will be raised from the dead. I will die in your place. I will take your sin upon myself. And God will raise me from the dead. And I will appear to you. And I will send you my spirit. So it's much easier for us than for Moses because we look back and see how God has been true to his promises day after day, year after year. But still, it's a life of faith. We trust God and we trust his word. And the alternative is despair, by the way. All right, there we have Moses and his doubt. Let's have a look at God and his name. You're still with me? Someone say amen. Amen. Someone say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, David. I think you should get a bonus this year. I'll, I'll speak to, I'll speak to Royden. I'll speak to Royden to get a bonus. Okay. Moses and his doubt. Now let's have a look at God and his name. Chapter 3, verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, obviously, what we have here is supernatural. We don't have a problem with supernatural because God is the God of natural and supernatural. If he is the God of creation, if he is the creation of the laws of nature, surely he can suspend the laws of nature for his own purposes, and he does so in this case. So this burning bush doesn't burn up. It goes against the normal laws of thermodynamics. But it's God. We're not surprised. We've all seen the power of fire, and fire is often associated with God in the Bible. So when God was leading the nation of Israel through the wilderness, by day there was a pillar of cloud, by night there was a pillar of fire. When God appeared to Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments, there was lightning, thunder, and fire. Fire is a sign, yeah, God speaks through a burning bush. We've all seen the power of fire in just these last couple of days. We've seen on TV the, the devastation of fire down in Simonstown and Fishhook. We have no control when you have a raging fire. Perhaps you've seen a building burn. It's terrible. It's terrible. It's frightening. It's terrifying. It's destructive. And God is associated with fire. It points to, to, the, to the holiness of God, the majesty of God, the power of God. God can be dangerous. God can be destructive. God can be deadly. For those of us who live here in Vorna Valley and Waterfall four or five weeks ago, remember that hailstorm, dreadful hailstorm. I was caught in it in a car. And uh, many of our homes, we had huge destruction. Our gardens were shredded. And while you're sitting there and this hail is coming, you realize this could be a sign of an angry God. And you have no control. You are impotent. 
totally. The God of the Bible is not like the God of our culture. I think in our South African culture, God is rarely seen as being a God of holiness or majesty or power. I think most people think of God as their blesser. He's there to bless me. He's there to, um, he's, uh, he's my enabler. He's my bank. Um, uh, God is your buddy. Um, or perhaps God is love, period. I think most people in our culture don't think that God is love. Most people think that love is God, which is another story, isn't it? Of course God is love. But at the same time, he's a God of holiness. He's a God of justice. He's a God of truth. So the God of the Bible, as we see here, there's a taste of it. And some of us had a small little taste four or five weeks back of that hailstorm. The God of the Bible is not warm, fuzzy teddy bear. Okay? He's not, he's not Father Christmas. He's not your girlfriend. No, he's a holy God. He's a powerful God. He's a majestic God. He's a dangerous God. It's dangerous. And we are to fear him and we are to take off our sandals when we come into his presence. Not literally, but figuratively speaking. We don't come into God's presence, waltzing into his presence on our own terms. No, God has given us the terms by which we enter his presence. And for Moses, that was to take off your shoes. I wouldn't recommend that at Christchurch Midrand because the smell would not be great and we may need to start burning incense. Now notice verse 13 where God gives Moses his name. God gives Moses his name. Notice there verse 13. Then Moses said to God, it's almost his full name here. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, the Hebrew culture, a name was much more than just a label. It revealed a person's character. It told us something about a person's personality. What was that person like? It was your story. Not unlike uh, our African culture, where a name has a meaning. So the question in verse 13, which which Moses says, this is what the people are going to say. What is his name, this God who sent us? Moses is saying, what kind of God is this? What kind of God is he? What is he like? What is his character? Who is he? God then answers the question in verse 14. He discloses himself. He discloses his nature, his character. It's God's self-disclosure. It's God's self-revelation. And God says, I am who I am. Now, in the original Hebrew, that comes, that I am who I am, comes from the verb to be. So it can be translated, I am who I am, or I will be what I will be. End of verse 14, the Lord, Yahweh, I am. So it's quite obvious that his name points to the fact that God is ever-present, both now and the future. God is independent. God is inexhaustible. So the name points to the self-existence of God. 
He's the God of the past, of the present, of the future. He's eternal. He's everlasting. There's an old English word that we no longer use. It's the word aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. You can Google that afterwards, not now. Um, aseity, which means self-existent, means independent. Now, children don't know the word, but they do know the concept. If you've had small children, you will recognize this dialogue. Or perhaps you've had nephews or nieces or grandchildren. Mommy, who made me? God made you. Mommy, who made the trees? God made the trees. Mommy, who made the flowers? God made the flowers. Mommy, who made God? Uh Uh-oh. Where's David? Well, no one made God. If we teach our children that everything has a maker, then who makes the maker? That's what the child is asking. If we teach our children everything has a cause, then who caused the cause? Well, the simple answer is God didn't have a cause. God didn't require a cause. God caused everything to be, but he is caused by no one. He didn't create himself. He has always existed. He exists by his own power. It's like the burning bush in chapter 3, verse 2, which really is a symbol of God. It doesn't burn out. It's inexhaustible. It has life in and of itself. So it's a, it's a, it's a concept outside of our thinking because Everything we know has a beginning, has an end. We will have a beginning. We will have an end. But not so with God. God is outside of our little categories, our little uh, worldview. God's God's outside our little cubby holes where we define and everything is, is in its place. No, God is beyond that. God has no cause. There has never been a time when God did not exist. There never will be a time when God does not exist. Nothing caused God. God didn't cause himself. He's not derived. He's not dependent. He's independent. He's eternal. He's the source of all things. That's why we worship him. He's so unlike us. We are the creatures. He's the creator. Better take off your shoes. Now, what is important for us to understand on the 24th of December, is that Jesus uses the same name for himself. Have a look at John chapter 8, verse 58. John 8, verse 58. You've got it there, John 8, 58. Jesus is speaking to those who are persecuting him, those who are opposing him, those who actually want to kill him. And they do eventually. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Well, of course they picked up stones to throw at him. He's claiming to be equal with God. Before Abraham was, I am. My dear friends, the Bible is crystal, crystal clear of the deity of Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Have a look at John chapter 5, the same idea in slightly different words. John chapter 5, verse 26. 
He's speaking here about his self-existence. John chapter 5, verse 26, have you got it there? For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. He's speaking there about the self-existence of the Father, the self-existence of the Son. Crystal clear, the deity of Christ. He was both man and God at the same time. Everywhere else you find in John's Gospel, Jesus uses that phrase, I am. I am the resurrection. He didn't use that by accident. I am the resurrection. I am the good shepherd. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. In all those passages, Jesus is claiming equality with God. The word aseity, that old English word, can be applied to both the Father and the Son. Both are self-existence. Extraordinary. Now, let me start closing off. There are many implications. Go back to Exodus 3. There are many implications of this name. Many. But let me mention one of them as we close. When we, when we reflect on ourselves, when we examine ourselves, we discover that our greatest doubts and fears have to do with the fact that life is fragile and insecure. That is where our greatest fears come from. Life is uncertain. I don't know if you felt that this year. I have. We all have. Not just this year, but it's part of our humanity, not only to doubt, but to fear. As Christians, we fear. Let's be honest. We're afraid of the future. We're afraid of the unknown. We're afraid of failure. We're afraid of pain, we're afraid of cancer, we're afraid of loneliness, and above all, we're afraid of death. What's the antidote to our fears, to our insecurities? Ultimately, it's not drugs and alcohol. You can try to escape it, but it's there. You'll get it back the next morning. It's always there. You can say to yourself, well, if I... I just need to get out of this country. Go somewhere safe. Let me go to an island. There are no people. There are no governments. There's no municipalities. There's no ESCOM. There's no there's none of these things. I'll go to this, this island, and then suddenly you're on this island sunbathing, and this little mosquito comes, bites you, you get malaria, and you die. There's no escape, my dear friends. So the ultimate antidote is not found in this world or in creation. It's not found in distraction. That is one of the primary means that our culture used to escape thinking about death. So people turn on the music the moment they wake up, or the social media, or the TV, or the internet, or the Wi-Fi, and till the, day, till the moment they go to bed at night, they never switch off. Perhaps that's true of you. And the basic reason is you don't want to be quiet. You don't want to be faced with your own thoughts. They scare you, so you never turn it off. The answer is not found in distraction. It's not found in drugs. It's not found in alcohol. It's not found in living somewhere else. No, it's found in the God who is self-existent. Listen again to C.S. Lewis. Listen carefully. It's so good. 
I quote, the settled happiness and security which we all desire, God withholds from us by the very nature of our fallen world. The security we crave would teach us to rest our hearts in this world instead of in God. He has given us joy and pleasure. We have plenty of fun and love, but we are never safe. Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but he will not encourage us to mistake them for home. The fact of the matter, my dear friends, is you'll never be safe. I'll never be safe. It's not found this side of heaven. It was in the garden, but we rejected the garden. There will be pleasant inns. There will be some refreshing moments. But it's never home, and it's never safe. Home is found in God. Safety is found in the God who says, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Take off your shoes and worship me. He promised to be with us everywhere, anywhere, anytime. He promised to be with us in those dark days, those dark holes, even when some of those dark days and holes we caused, he will be with us. I will never leave you or forsake you, even through the valley of the shadow of death. Let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word. You tell God where you are. If you're not a Christian and you know that and you want to be a Christian, you need to talk to God. You need to say something like, Lord, will you have mercy on me? Will you make me a Christian? Will you gatecrash my life and make me your child? Father, for those of us who are Christians, we do need to first of all ask you to forgive us when we have despaired when we have fallen into a hole of fear or sin. Oh Lord, will you have mercy on us? Will you cleanse us and wash us? And bring us back into the light and help us, Lord, to understand that this world is not safe and it's not home. And it never will be safe and it never will be home. So help us to long for you which is where home is. Help us to long for you where safety is. Help us to rest in you and to trust in you. Lord, go with us into this week. Help us to serve you, to stand for you, wherever you place us. 
And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.